First, let me introduce myself again. My name is Casey Kramer. I'm the pastor of children and families here at Christ Pres. And if you're seated at the end of your rows, would you do me a favor? Take the black notebook. Uh, uh, take out the pen and, and sign in. It's, it's a great way for us to know that you're here to make a, a bigger church seem smaller and, and to let us know if you have any prayer needs at this time. Also, if you're visiting with us, go to our website, www.christpres.org. It's a great way to see what's going on holistically with our church and to get dates and times and things like that as well. So uh, the first announcement is, are you new to CPC? Or maybe you're just curious about us. What's going on here? CPC has a one-day class. It's called CPC 101. It's where we can learn about CPC's vision, mission, values, and you're guaranteed to learn a lot, at least make one new friend um, while you're there at the event. It's this Saturday, February 4th, from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m., and lunch will be provided. Details are in the bulletin as well. And the second announcement is that CPC Women's Ministry is holding its third citywide forum uh, entitled Refugees, Nashville as Home. Did you know that Nashville is home to nearly 60,000 refugees? And so this topic is extremely relevant to the city. CBC Women's Forum attracts excellent uh, speakers, and so you'll want to sign up as soon as you can because space is limited. So again, details are in the bulletin. And so before Dr. Lim comes up to uh, do our sermon, I would love for uh, JT to come up and read our scripture, please. JT, come on up, buddy. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but as salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, JT. That's great. Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Uh, my name is Paul Lim. I serve here at Christ Press as well as at Vanderbilt University as a, a scholar in residence here, as well as a historian in the Divinity School. So it's a great delight for me to be opening the Word of God with you today. Um, if you're able, let's uh, join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day, a day that is different in many other days here in Nashville, Tennessee, with a little bit of snow outside that reminds us of uh, the changes of season, and at the same time being reminded of the fact that with you there is no shadow of turning at all. We thank you for being that eternal God who is ever near us and with us, yet at the same time calling all things unto yourself according to your sovereign will. And we are mindful of the fact that this week past uh, marked a couple of uh, important milestones in our life together as humanity and that uh, Two days ago on Friday was the uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day in which we did remember the extent to which we're capable of doing wrong to one another. Um, and also at the same time, uh, this last Sunday was a 44th Remembrance of Roe versus Wade decision that had a tremendous impact in the way we think about the beginning of human life and its sanctity. 
Pray that you will continue to use us and make us to be uh, those followers of God who honor life from cradle to the grave. Help us to fight for the human rights, dignity, and sanctity for all of your creatures, Jews and Gentiles, women and men, black and white, brown, red and yellow, young and old, and poor and rich. Help us be the living Jesus to the most vulnerable, lonely, and fearful among us in our nation and on planet Earth, reminding us that only in doing so we will make Jesus truly great. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. So I want to start with a personal confession. I got a key idea for this sermon from a bumper sticker. It was Friday afternoon, and you know if a preacher doesn't have his sermon all worked out by the time he picks up his kids from school, you know they're in trouble. And I was picking up my son from school trying to figure out a good way to connect this all-too-familiar text of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with those who will worship the Lord at CPC this Sunday, both in town and central. And behold, there was a, a car in front of me with a very, very interesting and very helpful bumper sticker. And it read, Lord, help me be the kind of person. Can you help me finish the sentence? Lord, help me be the kind of person that my dog thinks I am. Have you seen that one? It spoke so deeply to my heart. <laughs> behind the humor and hilarity, this bumper sticker lies, uh, you know, behind this bumper sticker lies a tragic reality of the gap, both ontological and ethical gap between what my dog thinks I am and what I really am. We don't own a dog, so we were at a dinner party last night, and with this friends of ours have two dogs. And I was thinking about not the whole time, mind you, but, you know, every, <laughs> throughout the dinner, looking at this one particular big dog and, and looking at this dog's kind of looks on my face, and I said, I wonder what this dog really thinks about me. Probably better about me than I think about myself sometimes. And so this bumper sticker is a prayer. And so, you know, there was a long line to pick up our son, so I pulled out my phone and Googled the phrase, Lord, help me be, help me be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. And one of the things that popped up was a, a music video by the Bellamy Brothers. I hadn't heard of them, but it's a really, really fun song. I listened to it about 20 times. I got so pumped up to preach a sermon thanks to the bumper sticker and the song by the Bellamy Brothers. Lord, help me be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. Yet, as I picked up our son and watched the video with him one time, and I was kind of reminded of the fact that there still lies that gap, that my dog may think I am one kind of person, I may be another kind of person, and how do you bridge that gap? And I do think that if we're really honest with ourselves, we are confronted with that uncomfortable fact, who we are when we are really by ourselves, and what our dog may think about ourselves, and what our God may think about ourselves. And it is the last statement, what our God thinks about ourselves, that gives me some hope, and therefore gives me more faith, and inflames my love. So rather than taking me deeper into my guilt and shame and away from God in the most fundamental way, there is something that I noticed that was both mundane and so profound that really kind of cause me to leap with joy from this text. You know what it is? You ready? Jesus didn't say, did he? 
you will be the salt of the earth or you will be the light of the world. Instead, Jesus said you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world. That means this was a present reality, not a future aspiration. You don't really have to worry about what your dog thinks about you because in this text, it's clear what God thinks about you, that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world. If that is indeed the indicative statement of who we are, in fact, in Jesus Christ, how do we then mind the gap, right? Mind the gap, whether in a London kind of, you know, um, translation, you know, where you hop on the tube, or just minding that gap between who we are as we think about ourselves and who God has claimed us to be already. And how do we mind that particular gap is the very thing that our Christian journey does require, much wisdom, much prayer, much communal conversations. So today, I would like to share with you two ideas that are clustered together. The first is union and communion, and the second is glory and irony. Union and communion, and glory and irony. So let's go with the first point, union and communion. One of the things to remember is that Jesus talks about nothing so abstract or esoteric in this text. In fact, many of his sermons and stories are very, very simple, yet profoundly challenging, right? Simple at the level of what he talks about. He's talking about salt and light. What could be commoner than that, right? Salt is something that we use every day, right? Okay, maybe, maybe almost every day. But if you're into cooking, you're going to have to use salt or something salt-esque, every time you enter into your kitchen. Every time you try to live your life today, I am sure you have used the light already today. Imagine this sanctuary right now without light. All the lights, including these wonderful electric candle lights, go out. Nothing is left. There's no light in this room, then it profoundly alters the way that we look at each other, the way we behave, the way we think about, okay, which way is out, how do we go, and so on and so forth. He uses elements that were so common, widely used, so that everyone can have access to understanding this profoundly life-altering truth about ourself, our Savior, and our society. As today's sermon is entitled, Salt, Light, and City. And these are a very interesting triad. Jesus calls us to be and remind us that we are salt and light. And Jesus also calls us out from this world, but places us right within the world in many cities of the world, to be the light bearers of God. As most of us know that the most widely used condiment in human history is salt, right? Not honey, not pepper, and certainly not the sriracha sauce that many of us use. We get the idea of union in this word, you are the salt and light. For the followers of Jesus and the readers of the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew, ever since the composition of the book was completed, one of the key challenges in interpretation had been to know the exact relationship between these followers and these things called salt and light. Are they to become some kind of futuristic state uh, that they should aspire to, or were they descriptive of who they were already in their present state of being? The answer is quite clear. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. So what is the basis, we might ask, for this confident assertion of Jesus regarding his disciples? Remember, friends, this was before he sent out the 12. This was before he sent out the 70. This is before the advent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is certainly before the famous sermon by Peter 
in Jerusalem, and for sure this was before the wildfire spread of Christianity in the second half of the first century and much beyond. So what is the basis for this audacious statement Jesus makes that you are the salt, that you are the light? The basis is simply this. It is that union with Christ. It is that God who takes the first step in creation and recreation. It is that God who makes the first move in making us according to God's image. It is that the same God who makes the first move in restoring us and redeeming us and recalling all of creation unto God, he is the one who takes the first step in uniting himself with us. When we were away from God, when we were running away from God, when we were deaf to the call of God, when we were being claiming our own independence and idolatry apart from God, God does not mind that, yet God, just like the hound of heaven, comes after us graciously and not so hurriedly, but according to his perfect plan, comes to us and unites us with Christ. So the basis of Jesus saying that you are the salt, that you are the light, is that God has already claimed us for himself in Jesus Christ through that union with Christ. So this 16th century Genevan pastor named John Calvin said that the most beautiful truth about the gospel is our union with Christ, that God has united us with Christ. And think about that and and marinate our our own kind of self-identities with that. The fact that Christ took the first step in calling us to himself, in uniting us, giving us that embrace, reminding us that you belong to me and I am never going to leave you. Imagine that embrace, imagine that relationality. Imagine that one relationship without which you can live. And this is it. And Jesus says, you know, it is simply that union with Christ, simply and only because God in Jesus Christ takes the first step in uniting himself with us, we can have our extreme makeover in our identity. We're not what we once were, and nor are we yet what we shall be. But all has been changed, and all are being purified, as Martin Luther famously said about the trajectory of our journey toward God. Let's think about the kind of function salt and might have. What do you use salt for? What do you use light for? Broadly speaking, they're positive and negative. Salt enhances the flavor, the object that is put on, right? Whether it is steak or kind of vegetables or whatever other food items, uh, uh, that it adds and enhances the flavor. Also, it preserves the freshness of that material by preventing it from decaying. And it, and it, it can also be used as a cleanser for the entity itself. My travels to Ethiopia and Cambodia, for example, you know, uh, when I didn't have my toothpaste, I was told by my sisters and brothers, hey, use salt to brush your teeth. And I hadn't done that much before, and I hadn't done that much since, but while I was there, I used salt, and it was really, really awesome. Recommend that for you. Light dispels darkness. Light enables the one in the dark to see the path one needs to take, and light provides the very basic necessity for our human survival and flourishing. Imagine your diet without any salt at all, nothing salty whatsoever. Imagine your life without any light at all, nothing. Imagine that. It is impossible, nigh impossible to even dare to imagine life without salt and light. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? Jesus is saying that you are to be that. You are already that indispensable element in our cosmic journey together. God says, okay, here you are. You are the salt and you are the light. And this is your God-given destiny and mission. You are called to be that. That's Jesus' point. 
The disciples, by their union with the source of life, the giver of true flavor of life called joy, and by their union with the source of brilliance, they could truly see themselves as who they are and whose they are, as well as to see the world in its need for light. The other side of union is communion. Notice this. Jesus said, but if the salt loses its saltiness, he raises this question, what good is it? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. The purpose of salt and light is to be used for the sake of the other. Did you hear that? The purpose of salt and light is to be used for the sake of the other, not for itself. The salt is not salty for itself and its own existence. The salt gains and its true identity by coming in contact with or in communion with other elements, meats, fruits, vegetables, or something that is decaying. Think about that. The purpose of salt and light is to be used for the sake of the other by being in communion with them. And I think it is worth pondering a bit. The ultimate usefulness of salt and light is being used, therefore, disappearing. Imagine that. And so many of us, starting with me, I like to be the salt and the light, and I like to keep my identity intact. I don't like to disappear into the background. I want to be at the front and center of what I do as salt and light. And Jesus says, hang on, if you really understand the nature of my mission, you will understand the irony of the gospel so that you shouldn't mind being in the background and disappearing. And we'll talk more about that in the second cluster of ideas of glory and irony in just a few minutes. Let me put it bluntly here, my friends. Jesus says that there is no room for selfishness or inordinate self-absorption if you really understand that your true identity is that of salt and light, and it is wrapped up in your union with this wonderful Lord, the giver of true joy, giver of true light. Salt, if it does its job, enhances flavor, present, prevents decay, etc. But you know what happens when it has done its job. As I said, it disappears. In coming in contact with the very things that need salt and saltiness, salt itself disappears in its communion. In making the dark room bright and brilliant, the candle that Jesus used in his first century world simply disappeared. Imagine that, right? Think about that. A candle that you have, unless it's an electric candle like this that we have here, they disappear. Wax candles, they're by nature, if they have done their job, they will disappear in the act of providing light for the other, for the surroundings. And Jesus is calling us to remember that, that you are the salt and you are the light. And the purpose of the light is not to be hidden, but to really be displayed in order to bring out the brilliance of the surroundings as they are. Also dispelling, dispelling darkness in that act, right? So that's exactly it. You know, even these candles that we have, you know, I guess one good thing about these candles is as our children come back and maybe by accident run into the communion table, these candles topple over. You don't have to worry about any carpet burning or the kind of burning that we don't want to happen, you know, in, in our sanctuary. And, but even these candles, they need their batteries replaced. So none of the lights that we know is self-generative light, Right? In Isaiah chapter 49, 6, the, uh, the people of Israel were called to be the light for the nations in being the one, that, the one people that Yahweh identified with and had chosen. One of the concrete fruits of their union with the source of true light was not only their communion with that Lord, but also communion with the world in service 
of this world. So the people of Israel were called to be the true light, the reflector of that true light for the many nations, for all the Gentile nations. And in doing so, uh, to cause the other nations to see their need for light and the source thereof. In properly fulfilling their role as salt and light, as we mentioned earlier, they disappear. And they are never really drawing attention upon themselves. The salt never really draws attention upon itself. If done rightly, the salt really enhances the flavor of the object itself. The light itself, the purpose of the light is not to draw attention upon itself as much as the object and the surroundings. As C.S. Lewis observed, Christianity is like the sun that not only does it show everything in their proper light and complexion, but it is through it, both Christianity and the sun, that everything else can be seen. We reflect the source of our light, namely the sun, S-O-N, who is the creator of the sun, S-U-N, and everything else radiant in our cosmos. Therefore, our union with Christ gives us the identity as salt and light, and in that primary identity, knowing that being assured of our primary identity, that we are united with Jesus, we can dare to enter into communion with the world in various cities, in Nashville, New York, and wherever else it may be, um, in order to leave it better and to allow it to shine in all of its God's intended brilliance and beauty. Now that we have talked about the Christian's union with Christ and their communion with the world, in order to leave it better and make it shine more brilliantly and enhance its true flavor, allow me to make a very crucial historical observation. As a historian of Christianity, every time I read a biblical text, whether the Old Testament or New Testament, I often think about the immediate historical context and more importantly, how the first readers of these texts might have reacted to these texts. I'm talking about the listeners and auditors of Jesus' first sermon or many of his sermons, as well as the composition of the New Testament. And so I want to make a historical observation by way of quoting from someone that I really esteem, a prominent New Testament scholar from the University of Edinburgh. Larry Hurtado has written this book that has helped me tremendously in seeing the reasons why early Christianity grew and how it was perceived by the wider Roman society, etc. It is called the destroyer of the gods, the destroyer of the gods, early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world. It really kind of helped me in my understanding, because I grew up, uh, you know, as a non-Christian. I became a Christian at age 21. And part of the reason why I do what I do now as a professor in a secular university is because I had a lot of questions about the Christian faith after I embraced this. I had more questions than the answers, but that one answer called Jesus, the incarnate one from God, provided a sufficient kind of reason for staying within the Christian fold while seeking further answers and greater sense of assurance of belonging. And Larry Hurtado has been one of those scholars that has helped me in my journey. This is how he concludes, and please allow me to quote him extensively, and I'll follow it up with Tim Keller's review of this book. Here, Hurtado is talking about the cost of being salt and light of the world as early Christians followed the teachings of Jesus in the, light of, in the life of the Roman Empire. So here is what he says. But there are other and much more frequent costs as well for being a Christian in the first three centuries. For example, you might receive harassment and ostracism from family members, friends, and associates if you embrace Christianity. Christian slaves or pagan masters might well have, suf might, might well have suffered corporal punishment, Wives of pagan husbands might well, receive, might well have received verbal and physical abuses. 
scrupulous Christian members of professional guilds who demurred acknowledging the guild deities and gods would have found themselves the object of scorn and worse, including loss of profit-making opportunities. Indeed, these and other social costs were such that it prompts the question, the question, why people chose to become Christians in that period, when there is nothing to be gained whatsoever, in a way, in terms of the, the material things. Of course, there was eternal life to be gained. Most attempts to answer that question, to, to me, seem facile, writes Hurtado. I confine myself here to making the observation that the social cost of becoming a Christian in the first three centuries comprised another way in which early Christianity was distinctive. It was unlike the consequences of joining practically any other religious group or voluntary associations. Becoming a Christian in that time period involved something far more demanding. For in requiring the renunciation of the traditional gods, adherence to early Christianity differ from participation in any other voluntary association. Let me un 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 unpack that for us here in our cultural context of Nashville, Tennessee. It seems to me I'm a relative kind of a newcomer, newbie to life in Nashville. My wife and I and our son have been here since 2006. So 11 years of journey here. Um, I think it is safe to say that m many Nashvilleans tend to take Christianity as the religion of the region, right? I mean, it's kind of people would ask, what church do you go to? I often meet people in various functions that would ask me, what church do you go to? What if I didn't go to church? I mean, it's kind of the, the panoply of the cultural assumptions about who we are and how we relate with one another. And that kind of question will never be raised in Palo Alto, California, or London, I mean, England, or it, it just won't. I mean, you know, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. So maybe one of the benefits of that sort of cultural modality here in Nashville is that being a Christian is not going to be a persecutory reality for many of us, but at the same time, it may actually distance us or disadvantage us from really understanding what these first three century Christians might have really looked at in terms of their ready-made, they're about to make the commitment to Christ and the cost of following this erstwhile carpenter from Nazareth. In other words, in fulfilling their identity mission as salt and light, early Christians in Roman Empire differ from their neighbors, and their difference was not predicated on their hatred of the world, but rather their love for God and their love for the neighbor. Nevertheless, it often led them to be, to be at odds for being potential social threats. This is what Tim Keller says about this book. Quote, if a religion isn't different from the surrounding culture, if it doesn't critique and offer an alternative to it, it dies because it's seen as unnecessary. The early church surely looked like it was on the wrong side of history, not with the Romans, but instead it cha changed history with a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. In truth, many in the Roman culture labeled early Christianity and Christians as silly, stupid, antisocial, and obstinate. Yet, sometimes when Christianity joined the hands of the winners, those in charge, whether Emperor Constantine or any other emperors and empresses, any queens or kings, prime ministers or presidents, or joining the prevailing culture as a blesser of that institution, results were not always great. Similarly, one of the clearest thinkers in the last century in America, H. Richard Niebuhr, the younger brother of Reinhold, and no friend of conservative Christianity, made this prophetic comment about mainstream Christianity's social gospel in America that lost its saltiness and light. He said, we have a God without wrath who brought men and women without sin into a kingdom, into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. God without wrath 
men and women without sin into a kingdom, that kingdom without any judgment, through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. The salt and light, if rightly united to their source, cannot be exclusively world-denying. So when you look at the whole kind of a span of history of Christianity, in various episodes, some Christians were much more world-denying, saying we will deny all of its kind of you know, brilliance and whatever because they're all decaying and they're all corrupt. So it cannot be exclusively world-denying, nor can it be merely a rubber-stamping source for all that the surrounding environment seeks to experience and enjoy. Namely, the church is no different from the world in its orientation and its own mission and identity. Knowing how to discern between the two as we live in the city of Nashville, talking about our jobs, talking about our joys, talking about sports, talking about death, talking about sex, talking about relationships, how do we do that as followers of Christ, as salt and earth in this city can be a daunting task thus requiring much wisdom and empowerment from the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the story uh, of Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen? I read it as a small child growing up in Korea. And I love that story, and I want to share that with you because as it relates with the whole thing of, you know, uh, um, having the sort of courage. The emperor was so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all his money on being well-dressed, as you remember. He cared about nothing but, but uh, nothing about reviewing his soldiers, going to the theater, or going for a ride in his carriage, except to show off his new clothes. So that was his thing. That was his shtick. He always wanted to show off his new clothes. So what happened? Two swindlers, two shysters came through town, and they said, we're the best clothiers ever, and we're going to make the most, you know, kind of wonderful and, and exciting and unprecedented type of clothes for the emperor. And you're going to have to pay a lot of money, and here's a trick. One important caveat about this new set of clothes that the emperor was going to receive was that only those who were qualified for their position and only those who weren't idiots could see the clothes. Because you know what they're going to do? These swindlers, what they're going to do is they're going to spin the clothes out of nothing and the clothes will be made out of nothing at all. So in, in effect, when the emperor will put on the clothes, he will not put on anything at all, thus be naked. But that's the whole point. So the swindler said, okay, we're going to be busy at work. So the emperor got really excited. He said, okay, I want to see how the progress is going. So he's dispatched these two emissaries, man and a woman. You go and find out what's going on. And they go and what do they see? They see nothing at all on the looms, nothing at all on the sewing machine, nothing. Yet they could not say, could they, that they weren't seeing anything at all. So they said, oh, what wonderful display of your kind of artistic kind of cloth, cloth making kind of thing that we see here. And the, the, the swindler said, that's right. So they run back to the king and said, you know what? Your clothes are, you know, beautifully under progress right now. So five days later, the clothes were made. And the emperor is super excited. These two swindlers came and said, here we go, your majesty. Let's try on your clothes. And they pretended they're cutting some things and, you know, uh, you know, kind of making it fit better. When in fact, there was nothing, nothing at all. So the emperor is stark naked. And he was deeply embarrassed because he saw no cloth at all, no clothes to be worn. Yet he could not admit that he wasn't seeing anything because that would prove that he would be unfit for the job and he's a moron of the worst sort. So there's the beginning of this procession. Everyone's kind of filing in to see this wonderful because there was lots of talk about this. And the emperor starts walking and everyone's horrified because he's buck naked, but no one could say that that person is naked. So they're like, hey, you know, long live the king. He's wonderfully dressed today. And everyone was saying the same thing toward, until the end of the procession. 
where there was a small child, and the small child had a courage to say, simple and innocent courage to say, the emperor has no clothes on whatsoever. To which the father responded by saying, stop prattling, don't say things like that. Yet the child continued on and saying, the emperor has no clothes, and the emperor has no clothes. And you know how the story ends, right? You don't know how the story ends? Everybody joins in and saying that the emperor has no clothes, yet the emperor himself is walking tall and hearing all this kind of rejection of the people and ridicule of the people, knowing that he's been duped and these two swindlers are long, long gone with their treasure chest of money, in fact. When I first read the story as a 10-year-old boy, I thought the story was really funny. It is funny. It's a funny story. But the real punchline to me then was that the emperor had no clothes. But the punchline to me as I reread the story this last week was really more on the child and the child's simple desire to tell it like it is. Now, as Christians, our main kind of conflictual mode here is that. How do we speak the truth in love? Do we speak the truth? If so, how do we do it? Or do we simply love, therefore remain ourselves relatively silent? Whether it is about poverty, whether it is about human identity, whether it is about sexuality, whether it is about structural injustice, whether it is about racism, what is the church's response and responsibility to really live into and weigh heavily on these matters? Do we, like H. Richard Niebuhr said, God without wrath, bringing men and women without sin into a kingdom, without judgment, through the ministrations of a cross, uh, of Christ without a cross? Throughout history, the Christian community and the church had to play the role of the little child, calling out that the emperor and the empire had no clothes at all. Yet, if we're really honest, yet if we're really honest, we also have to acknowledge that rather than calling out the emperor, that the emperor has not only no clothes, but he's stark naked, but many of us have played a fool and sought to protect our own interests, thereby losing the saltiness and the light itself. Uncomfortable truth. That leads me to the second cluster of today's sermon, glory and irony. Let's look at verse 16, please. Jesus says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine, be- let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt and light do not draw attention to themselves, as we mentioned earlier, if true to their identity and calling. Jesus makes, cl- makes it clear that the ultimate calling In fact, the only thing that they should really be concerned about is not what the world thinks about me, but that the ultimate glory goes to God in heaven, who in truly fatherly and parental love and mercy gave us our true identity in allowing us to be united with his son and gave us the mission of letting the world see our union with God in our communion with the world. I don't know about you, but another confession on my part. So often I am caught up in what others think about me. And that becomes my idol, which can so easily and effectively hold me captive. A couple of years ago, I was talking with a very, very dear friend of mine, someone I knew for over two decades. And I was telling him about these, you know, forthcoming talks and lectures. And he lovingly and penetratingly asked me, so whose kingdom are you really building? I said, well, the kingdom of God, of course. He goes, no, no, I really want to know whose kingdom are you really building? It really got me thinking a lot. Because since I was busy going to this place and that place, I really hadn't had a time to reflect whose kingdom am I really actively seeking to build here? As John the Baptist said, 
Jesus must become greater and I must become less. We often forget that there are no two ways about it. There are no two ways about it, yet I was running around completely oblivious to that. That in the spiritual calculus, the calculus of the Christian journey, if he's going to become great, Jesus that is, then we must become less. Jesus has called us and said, those who will come and follow me must deny themselves in doing so. So we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Many of us have seen the, the, the most recent Star Wars movie, the Rogue One, and one of the most memorable lines from the Rogue One comes from this blind warrior, Chir. Do you remember that? And he says what? I am one with the force, the force is with me. I am one with the force, the force is with me. And the improbable, indeed impossible battle scene where Chirrut goes into the inevitability of the shadow of the valley of death, and he says, I am one with the force, the force is with me. I don't know about you, but I got all these goosebumps as I'm watching this, and it's not just because he's going to face inevitable death, but this person's conviction, this blind warrior's conviction that uh, he was one with the force, and the force is with him. In doing so, Church reminds the viewers that the one to remember is the force. In the same way, Jesus enabled the early followers to say that I am one with the Lord of the resurrection. This Lord is with me. In their march toward the mundane and the inevitable, life as well as death, and in all their activities, they were to give glory to God their Father in heaven. As Church gave glory to the force, the followers of Christ, as Jesus says, you know, in doing so, when they see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. The ultimate origin, true family, unbreakable bond of union, that we belong to this heavenly Father, whose desires and delight are such that we live our lives in communion with Him, but also in displaying the mercy and the goodness and the glory of the Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus made it very clear that while he was in the world, he was the light of the world. Furthermore, he made it abundantly clear that he had his own identity from the Father. It is inseparable in that triune glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that identity, Jesus saw his true self and his true mission. Lastly and relatedly, there is also the irony of the gospel that I alluded to earlier in the sermon. And the irony of the gospel is this, that the story of Christianity in the first three centuries was marked by the way it was seen as inimical to imperial peace, thus unfit and highly problematic for the good life envisioned within the Roman Empire in many ways. Irony of the followers of Jesus being salt and light is found in the fact that the true embodiment of salt and the true embodiment of light, namely Jesus himself, fulfilled his mission as salt and light in the state execution called crucifixion. Think about that. You're following Jesus, and you followed him for three years, and rather than ushering in the kingdom as you understood the kingdom to be, namely get, you know, getting, kicking out the Romans and restoring the kingdom upon, unto Israel, what happens to him? He dies as a hapless victim under the Roman statecraft. He's dying on a cross. And therefore, there is that irony. The irony of irony is that the, the, the Son of Man who has come to bring glory to God and restore the kingdom to Israel and much beyond is dying as a state criminal. 
Thus it comes as a salutary reminder to think about the relationship between Christian identity and confession and how it intersects with our being good neighbors and citizens as we follow this crucified one. Jesus said this, didn't he? He said, he or she who desires to gain his life will lose it. Yet they who would seek to lose their life for me and for my sake will find it. And it is the sort of a Pascalian wager. I want you to really wager this. Jesus says, you know what? Because he said these words before he died and rose again. And this really is that gambit that is throwing down as a gauntlet of challenging the believers and the auditors, the listeners. I want you to really wrestle with this. Do you believe me? If you want to come and follow me and lose your life for my sake, you will find it. But you will, you will have to lose it first to find it. But if you are shying away from it so that you can protect and preserve your own earthly interest, you tragically will lose it. These are really both comforting and challenging words, aren't they? Comforting in that the Lord who has said these words have proven himself to be indeed the authentic and the authenticating Messiah. But challenging in that it is calling us to come and die, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in the book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Jesus calls a man or woman, he calls them to come and follow and die unto self. So it really, this answer to this question of following Jesus as salt and light in the city requires much communal reflection, prayer for the welfare of the city, and the true, God of, true, God, the true love of God and our neighbor. Yet we do so as true friends who are willing to die for another friend, not as sworn enemies, as many in our culture wars have done so far. Let me say that again. As we live out our calling as salt and light in this world, we should do so not as I'm opponents with that person's agenda, but we should do so as friends who are willing to lay down one's life for another friend. Abraham Lincoln said these words in his first inaugural address. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. These words, as we well know, were spoken on the 4th of March, 1861, as he took, as he took office as the 16th president of the United States. He went on to say in that same address, though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And it calls for much wisdom as we seek to be the salt and light in our city that God has called us to. And may the Lord continue to encourage and empower and equip us for that wonderful and beautiful and true task. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these words, simple and sublime, straightforward, yet requiring much deeper reflection into every corner of what it is that you meant when you said that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world, that we are called not to be ineffective salt and light, that we are called to reflect the triune God's glory and grace in our deeds, thereby reflecting the glory to the Father in heaven. Lord, as we come to the table in just about a minute or so, these, these elements stand as powerful reminders that human devising and human efforts will simply not get us there. Yet, rather than waiting for us to get there, you have taken the first step in uniting yourself with us. So we, pro we are profoundly thankful for that. And as we come to the table, receive these elements, or in our seats, think about the mystery, the Paschal mystery of Christ, 
Help us to be fortified. Help us to be challenged. Help us to be nourished in all that you are and in all that you do. In your name we pray these things. Amen.